calling all consumer goods, business owners, and marketing professionals. Does planning content ahead of time stress you out? Do you want to run Instagram and Facebook ads, but just aren't sure where to start? If your answer is yes and yes, then our mini course was made for you. It's 100% free and packed with essential tactics that you can implement as soon as today. To join in, visit our website at umymarketing.com slash mini course. All right, let's get on with the pod. Welcome to the Umai Social Circle, where we talk consumer goods tips to help business owners and marketers grow. We're Karen and Allison, co-founders of Umai Marketing, and we're being joined by Amy Zeidelman, CEO and co-founder of Sum Foods, the leading North American purveyors of tahini and tahini products, and who also happens to be a member of our growth course community. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for making the time. Well, We'd love to just get started by learning a little bit more about you. So how'd you get started? Why Tahini? Yeah, great question. Well, I'm the youngest of three sisters and my middle sister, Jackie, moved to Israel in 2008, shortly after we graduated high school. My oldest sister, Shelby, spent a year in Israel in 2011 And at the time, Jackie was dating her now husband, Omri. Omri has been in the tahina, as they say in tahina, uh, in Israel or tahini industry at this point for almost 20 years. And when Jackie and Omri were dating, Shelby got to know Omri and got to understand tahini better and really just started asking questions, which was why was the tahini so much better in Israel? Why wasn't there good tahini available in the States? And also what did we even really know about tahini there? Um, And those questions really just started to frame a business idea. She pinged me, the youngest uh, sister, just graduating from University of Delaware. I studied interpersonal communication, and I really brought some of the background that I got at UD into shaping our initial strategy and business plan for hopefully making tahini a more popular ingredient in the American market. Uh, So we spent a year and a half doing market research and really understanding the opportunity. And in May of 2013, we imported our first uh, very small container of tahini and started selling it here in the Philadelphia area. Awesome. Well, I really want to know what, why is tahini so much better in Israel? (laughs) It's better in Israel. It's better in Lebanon. Uh, The secret is in the seeds and also in the manufacturing processes. But similar to coffee or wine, the region where sesame seeds grow produce a different flavor profile, quality and consistency. And then, of course, there are roasting and pressing processes that longstanding manufacturers have perfected. And so the seeds that Sum currently works with are seeds from Ethiopia. They're called white Humera sesame, and they grow in the northwest Humera region of Ethiopia. And they're really coveted for their nutty flavor profile. It gives tahini a lot more versatility than tahinis that are made from sesame seeds from South America, uh, Asia, India as well. And also ratio of oil to sesame meat, that plumpness of the sesame seed that makes for a really creamy and hopefully easily emulsified tahini product to use in your kitchens. That's amazing. And I have so many questions for you, but before we get too far, I have to share my special guest. I had this in my pantry. It's Sum's premium tahini. Um, I did have the chocolate tahini, but it is all gone because that one is just, you, you can't stop once you start. 
so good. Well, I'm glad to see it. And yeah, you know, <laughs> our goal has really been to get tahini into every pantry across the country. That for us has meant from professional cook kitchens to, you know, home kitchens. And we wanted to also educate the American market, not only of how they could use tahini at home, but its versatility. And that really lends itself to the sweet flavor profile, that nutty flavor profile, which uh, set itself up nicely as an alternative to Nutella and other sweet spreads on the market in our, in our chocolate spread. Yeah, absolutely. And and y'all do a great job with recipe content um, across the board. It it makes the product really easy to consume. And um, I, I love that y'all do that. But I want to go back to um, spending a year and a half on market research alone. Would you recommend other brands to do that and, and tell us, you know, what you learned along that path? I think... Yes and no. It really depends what another brand's goals are or timeline is. You know, being so young and coming straight out of college, I had the time to live in Israel for a year, go to Ethiopia actually twice in 2012 for the sake of it. And I didn't feel as much of a rush to, um, you know, get the product into market. But I wouldn't say that 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 year and a half of market research was through paralysis of needing to really understand what the market was. It was more so uh, our organic timeline that my sisters and I were on. I think one of the things that paralyzes people from getting started is this need for everything to be perfect. And especially in a digital age, the brand and the look and things like that. And that was not at all what held Zoom back. I mean, we launched with um, even not that that is even uglier labels than the label you just held up. We were able to rebrand a few months ago, which we're really excited about. But for us, it was understanding the product and understanding its potential space here. And it just happened to take that long due to life circumstances mixed in. Um, but I wouldn't say that there was anything special about doing that for longer. I think it's an ongoing process too. market research. You sh- we should all always be getting feedback from our consumers and understanding what's resonating with them and what's working in our marketing strategy and in our product communication. And so that's just an ongoing thing that should happen forever for a brand. Yeah, completely agree. And I love um, that you stated the paralysis that can happen when, especially when starting a business. I mean, that's a huge leap for anyone. Um, And, you know, we're big fans of just trying to find that balance between the quality and like doing things right, but also just getting going. Um, Because like you said, you, you have to learn along the way. So That's important, I think. Yeah, and there's something to it being like the least viable product, you know, like the best quality that you can accomplish with your resources and still be putting the product into the market. Um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that as long as your business model is aligned with projecting that into, not even just projecting that, presenting that into the, you know, into the, the realm of realities. But Yes, I think that there's always opportunity to grow and to improve and to wait until you have this idea of perfection when until you actually start doing something, you don't even know what that perfection could be, would ultimately just hinder anything from really getting off the ground. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're glad you did. (laughs) Love the product. So 
Yeah. Well, talking a little bit more about that growth that you just mentioned and like getting going and actually growing, what has been one of your biggest wins in your business so far? Yeah. Um, well, we've had an omni-channel approach that might be different than other brands' um, expectations. I know it was different than what we set out when we started Zoom, which was we wanted to get Zoom onto every grocery store shelf immediately and into every person's pantry in their homes. And what we didn't realize were there were other channels and other industries where tahini was a viable product, a really you know valuable product for the sake of growing a business and for contributing to that. And one of those industries was the restaurant industry. And so part of our market research stage, we were able to talk with an amazing chef and restaurateur here in Philadelphia. His name's Mike Salomanov with his partner, Steve Cook. And they own the Cook and Solo restaurant concept, in particular, a restaurant called Zahav, which won the James Beard Award for Best Restaurant in 2019. It's an Israeli restaurant. And at the time that we were starting Zoom, we asked him also, you know, what tahini are you using? And he said, I can't even name the brand. You know, it's nothing special. It's not a very high quality. And having his opening, that opening into his kitchen, into his pantry really facilitated the push that I think that we needed to, um, to get the product, you know, over here and into into distribution. So I think our biggest win following that was 18 months later, Mike actually launched a cookbook, uh, you know, published a cookbook called Zahav and Tahini was a big part of it. And he mentioned Zoom specifically in that cookbook. And it really facilitated a huge leap in brand credibility and really initiated that influencer model that could happen organically for a brand like ours, which is a big part of brand strategy these days, you know, almost 10 years later. That's awesome. I I would love to hear more about how that initial connection came to be. Did you just do a cold reach out? Did you stop by the restaurant or how did that happen? Yeah, exactly. Um, My oldest sister, Shelby, had been living in Philly. She went to college here and knew the restaurant in its startup days through hosting happy hours there before it had become, you know, the force that it had become. And it was, it was just a cold outreach saying, my sisters and I have a business idea about Tahina. We're wondering if we could pick your brain a bit. And that's really been our approach uh, along the entire way. I mean, it was the same thing going from grocery store to grocery store, which is if you start by understanding what your potential client needs, you can get to the solution for them a lot faster as opposed to making assumptions or projecting or even trying to sell in that first conversation. For me, my approach to developing those relationships and those pipelines towards you know, ultimately closing a deal is finding out what somebody's troubles are, you know, what issues you can fix for them with the product that you're providing. And so we use that initial cold call and and cold conversation. It's also my leading, you know, um, spiel when I'm at when I was at a farmer's market or demoing in the grocery store. More in real life, you know, marketing opportunities than the digital world that we'll I know we'll talk about a lot. But you know, asking somebody, "Are you familiar with tahini?" and then just finding out what their baseline is for the product that you want to tell them about is just a great way so that you don't lose somebody by making the wrong assumption. That's, I mean, that's so important. Um, I love how you did that approach. Like, let me pick your brain, let me solve your problems. And just like you said, that 
goes into B2B that goes into D2C. That's exactly how you, you know, market your brand with consumers as well as how can we solve the problems and pain points that you're going through with my awesome product. So it's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. And I mean, I have to say that like Zoom has also been in a unique circumstance where there aren't a lot of other people selling tahini. There are definitely more now, but back then, you know, almost 10 years ago, there weren't. And so there wasn't a lot of noise to have to cut through in order to become that known or go-to brand for the products once they found a place for it in their behaviors. Yeah, that's that's such a good point and something that I think a lot of the small business owners come up against, especially like when they're just like concepting an idea. So what would be a good piece of advice to a founder that may want to, you know, bring in a product that does already have competitors on the shelf? Oh God, I don't envy people that choose to do that. I always joke how lazy, you know, I am. I'm right. Me and my sisters are for not having to compete on that level, say with bars or granola or fill in the blank of these more competitive categories. I think the most important um, thing that you can do is to find your point of differentiation. I mean, I know I'm guilty of it too, where somebody's demoing a bar and I say, how is this different than another bar? And if they don't have the answer quickly, then I'm not sure if I'm going to decide to make space for it, you know, in my cart that day. But otherwise, I think finding allies and ultimately influencers that can help that can help build your credibility faster than you might be able to is a way that Zoom was able to kind of um, jump up a couple rungs as it related to just tahini's viability in the market. You know, finding chefs of restaurants that talked about how great tahini was, but also specifically how great Zoom was. We sampled with no intention or no expectation that they'd actually feature it tahini to so many bloggers and Instagram influencers. And I mean, this was eight years ago. So I know that the market for all of that has changed tremendously, but putting the product into the hands of people that can facilitate a faster and further reach, I think is a great strategy for, um, for hopefully overcoming some of those obstacles or challenges. Yeah. And I mean, that's a great note because regardless, yes, of course, the strategy has changed when it comes to influencer marketing, but something that you said and something that is true uh, has held true all this time is that when you partner with people that actually care about the product, that actually believe in the product, that's when the magic happens. So it's incredible that you found this chef. I mean, I need to go look at that cookbook and see how how you're featured because what a win. And that is because you nurtured the relationship. Right. And the, the when it comes up, when it happens organically and truly is authentic, that comes through. And I think one of my favorite things that has evolved since Zoom started or like five years ago versus today is the the difference in value of user generated content, like it doesn't need to be totally polished. You don't have to have paid for it, which there was a three to four year window there where like influencers were requiring a lot of money. Brands might not have had it. You didn't really know what was a really authentic recommendation versus an ad. And all of that shifted tremendously. I mean, really, I think thanks to COVID and this idea that Anybody can generate content and, and it, and I think it's become, and you two are the experts here. And I know I trust my marketing team for this. 
even more valuable to have a high volume of user-generated content as opposed to curated or paid-for influencer content. Spot on. (laughs) That's so spot on. We are, I mean, we preach constantly that lo-fi video Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, still imagery is going to impact the end user, the consumer so much more than a polished um, advertisement or creative in general, generally because it's that realness, you know, you want to be able to relate and you want to, um, it it builds trust and like social proof with brands. So I, I love that you brought that up because that is something that so many, um, you know, younger brands experience in their earlier days that they, they're, you know, saying, I don't have the budget to create these like, um, super visual pieces of content. And I don't have the budget to do all these things, but you know, making those relationships or doing things yourself or asking your friends and family to film things for you on the, on their iPhone or Android, whatever is super important and impactful and a lot cheaper. (laughs) Totally. And I mean, we, we do recognize the fact that especially as it relates to food, it needs to look appealing, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, I still don't post, even if I go to some of the best restaurants and the lighting is really dim, I'm like, I'm not going to post a picture of my plate right now because it doesn't actually look that good. But that's not to say that it has to be curated through a professional photo shoot either mm-hmm. by any means. Um, but I think that there's a time and a place and a stage of growth where it's worth the resources to invest in really high quality content. And but the the foundation comes from authentic, you know, testimonial, and that is never going to be a curated, beautiful, pretty picture. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I would love to hear more about um, the relationships that you created. What like even eight years ago? How do you continue to nurture those influencers and those chefs and um, continue those partnerships? Yeah. I mean, the chefs was a, was the part where that I loved the most, you know, to open up new markets. I traveled all across the country and put tahini in a rolly bag and knocked on restaurants doors while they were prepping for dinner service and pissing off the chef saying, will you just try our tahini? And then I would try to visit and go back, you know, as often as possible. In some markets, it was once a year In other markets, it might be two or three times a year. And for me, especially having studied interpersonal communication, it was those relationships and the healthfulness of connection that I think superseded even the, you know, the product itself. At the end of the day, anything it has competition. Tahini is a commodity. There are lots of tahinis on the markets. If you're selling a product in a more competitive category, there's obviously going to be um, people nipping at your heels. And your ability to connect with people and for them to trust and rely on you for things beyond just the product itself, I think helps solidify that, you know, more long, long-term and withstanding relationship. But I just believe in connection, you know, um, we reach out to our influencers, we follow their personal journeys. When they have a baby, we send a onesie type thing. And the other thing is that we, you know, just work to respect the fact that they're humans, we're humans, you know, we're all in this together. And the if there's an opportunity for us to help each other, then there's an opportunity. Or if the timing's not right, then it's not right. But 
just maintaining really clear expectations um, and and reliable relationships has helped us weather all that time. That's such a good note. I we push on this a lot with especially when we talk about influencer partnerships and kind of really just asking somebody to be a really strong word of mouth recommendation for your brand is the importance of that relationship. It's just like, it can feel so transactional through the phone screen. And so little things, I love that you said you send like a onesie when they have a baby and just like those connections that is so, so unbelievably important and really like not too expensive, you know, when you actually look at the grand scheme of things and how many people that they're going to be sharing your product with. Yeah. I mean, and we facilitated influencer kits where quarterly we sent out a jar of tahini, a jar of chocolate, some recipe cards, things like that. I think making it um, as easy as possible Mm -hmm. and as uh, the path of least resistance as possible for some influencers who reached a certain caliber of quote unquote commission. I mean, it was before we implemented some of our more commission applications and things like that as it relates to working with people these days. But if they if they accounted for a certain amount of sales on our website, we sent them a $200 gift card to Whole Foods. You know, uh, we really just wanted to make sure that we were adding value to their work and not just asking for value from them. Um, mm-hmm. And that's been our approach and I think is actually a great representation of what tahini does in dishes. So, you know, tahini is very rarely the star of a dish. It's supportive. It brings out the best of the chickpeas and the garlic and the lemon juice and hummus or, you know, the bananas in a smoothie, whatever it might be. It's so subtle and but still really strong and healthy and all those things. And I love when our business practices kind of model the qualities of tahini as well. Oh, that's awesome. That's very strong symbolism. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What I am so curious, what do the uh, onesies say? Anything cute? They say teeny tahini. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> For a long time, they were just like a little sesame seed, but we kind of outgrew that that logo and image. And yeah, now are just little teeny tahinis entering the world. Adorable. I love it. Well, yeah, so we talked a bit about the pain points you were solving for, you know, your partnerships and relationships. Can you tell us about a challenge or pain point that you or Zoom has experienced and how you got through it? Oh God, there's been (laughs) so many. I mean, I just, I I, I also want to reiterate and be transparent in the fact that Zoom as a marketing engine and as a consumer facing marketing engine is really a newer endeavor as it relates to our business. You know, a strong foundation of our company, in particular, the first six years was focused on the restaurant industry, which has very different requirements as it relates to um, expectations for marketing and for brand activation and things like that. We always had our product available to consumers through Amazon and, of course, on our website, a little bit through grocery stores, especially in the mid-Atlantic region, you know, from D.C. to New York. But so much of our business came from restaurants that the marketing side of it, things that your Umai, you know, uh, team and, and clients would likely relate to the most have really only emerged in the past few years. And that was because of a huge surge of consumer sales and access because of COVID. You know, when the restaurant industry shut down, and people started cooking at home more, 
all of that groundwork that we did with recipes and preparing for more people to have tahini into their homes finally clicked. And so in that, we hired a VP of marketing, Dana Mensa, who's the one that's implemented through my growth group um, into every associate that's come into our marketing department since. Um, we've built out our marketing department. We have new labels and, and brand like I was sharing before. And so one of our biggest challenges has been balancing those channels and the resources that you put into them and the purpose of marketing within those channels and the return that you could get you know, from those channel marketing endeavors. Um, but we've had anything, I'm super transparent about it, as challenging from a recall that we had to participate in in November of 2018 that really impacted the credibility and strength of the business through 2019. Of course, on the heels of that was COVID. We have distribution and operation challenges. Tahini is really heavy and very messy. And so bottles break in transit or um, buckets are damaged in shipping. And, you know, managing the relationship with the end user, whether it's a restaurant or whether it's a person that ordered one 11 ounce jar has always been important for us because of course things can go wrong. I think it's how you manage people's expectation and the communication through those challenges that really puts you on one side or another as it relates to the outcome. Yeah. And I mean, after hearing that, it's just also a reminder on the complexity and how many things can't, like you do need to have your eye on so many things at once. And to, even if something is so detrimental that you would think would be detrimental as like a recall, when that happens, it's like, you can recover from it. And that's proof that you have, and it happens all the time. I I think people like the PR teams are really good. (laughs) You might not know it has, but it, it does happen. Cool. So yeah, I, I think that I was really surprised. I don't know if you were, Allison, how big your B2B side of your business is. And for some of our brands, I mean, that could be definitely something that they're interested in, getting into more restaurants, getting into more wholesale. Um, so how does that B2B channel differ from that D2C channel in terms of marketing? D2C takes a lot more time and costs a lot more money. Um, You know, I would say that the volume of consumers that you need to acquire is very resource intensive. And whether you're acquiring those people digitally through your website, through Amazon or third party e-commerce at this point, or in the grocery stores, there's a lot more content and costs associated with that channel. The challenges in food service are ultimately in the complexity, like no different than the consumer channels in the gatekeepers and the decision makers. You know, um, a lot of times, especially as it related to Zoom, our decision makers were chefs. But there are times in a larger organization, like a fast casual change, where the gatekeeper is somebody in the finance department and they, you know, are more concerned about the cost of the product than the quality of the product or the performance of the product in the in the in the you know in the recipes that they're they're using at, at the store level. And so I think that understanding who your buyer is and the gatekeepers, whether that's an individual, which is more likely in B2B, or all the noise that I think exists on the consumer side mm-hmm. is really important um, in terms of understanding and differentiating between the channels. But the beauty of food service and restaurants, fast casual chains, small manufacturers, 
is that they buy more product and they buy it more often. And so when you do get tahini into a restaurant, a restaurant might use 40 pounds a week and a consumer at home, you know, no offense, Allison, but might be sitting on an 11 ounce jar for God knows how long and never finish it. Well, I will say it it lasts a long time. It does. It's a very long shelf life. It's worth the the money. (laughs) But that's just the reality of it. And it's not to say that you're not our ideal consumer, that you wouldn't love cooking with tahini. I have friends who have my jars, you know, sitting in their pantry and I'm like, why aren't you using it? And that's because human behavior and consumption behavior is super complex, right? The reasons why people decide to initiate a behavior and action are influenced by so many things. You mentioned social proof, Allison, which is one of the strongest and really like top three, I think, as it relates to enacting behavioral change. And so that's what I love and what I really encourage other food founders to consider is, is there a market or a channel where the volume is higher and the velocity is faster, because that's a great foundation for growing the consumer side, you know, um, more sustainably. Absolutely. You know, couldn't have said it better. (laughs) I am curious though, have you had to have, like, do chefs pass you on to the financial teams and have you had to sit down with those people? Yeah. in a few instances, like some of the larger um, channels that we work with, but it's no different really than I think your negotiations with a buyer in a grocery store, which is what are the margins going to be and what is your potential velocity or consumption and where's the interest from the consumer, right? The grocery store's consumer and end user are the people bringing bringing ingredients into their home or packaged goods into their homes. The restaurant's consumer is the person choosing to order it and eat it. And so if your product is not adding value in either of those circumstances to either of those consumers, then they're not going to purchase it. And the thing that's been most glaring to me over especially the past six months with this economic turmoil and this uh, ideas of inflation is it's value that's most important to people. They have to like your product, but it also has to match how much they're willing to spend on it, right? There's a threshold for loving something and then it becoming too expensive to love it enough to actually want to buy it. And that was something that we were able to learn through the restaurant industry because so much of it is also margin driven as opposed to where you can kind of fluff around that or manipulate by focusing on a core consumer and maybe be able to kick that can down the road because your early adopters don't care how much it costs. Eventually mm-hmm. though, to reach the masses, Somebody cares how much it costs and it's in relation to how much value it adds to their lives. Right. And and that's that's the reason I asked is I'm just imagining the financial teams that restaurants be cutthroat and even so more so with, you know, inflation, everything like that. So yeah, and and not having the the value, the taste buds of a chef. So just curious how, you know, those conversations go and and how you navigate them. Yeah. And I mean, the important thing to keep in mind and like understanding your consumer or your client is chefs are also very emotionally driven. And so but through that, especially our, our philosophy of connection and relationship building that helps solidify a place on a menu. The, uh, you know, another thing that's a great and to consider is once tahini is cut into a dish, it's hard to replace that with something else because it could interrupt the recipe and then you'd have to retrain your whole staff about how to make it. So in some ways, 
there's security and in some ways there's risk and, you know, all these other, I think, threats of, you know, disruption, but that's in any industry. At the end of the day, you want to like create this textbook of this is how to win on D2C online. And this is how to win in grocery stores. And this is how to win in restaurants. And as you know, and everybody listening to this knows, like, if there was a real playbook, then that would be a New York Times bestseller. And there would be a lot more people trying to do what we're all doing. Yeah, I mean, I'd read it. We'd all read it. It's not to discredit what like the Umai growth, you know, growth course does. What my team loves about it are real world examples of what has worked for other people, but that doesn't mean it's going to work for you also, you know, and I think having that perspective and having a team or a, um, a curation, like what Umai provides and be able to think about how does this apply to us and our product and our brand, or how might we be a little bit different is so helpful in the onboarding of new strategies when there's a lot of noise going around about what really works or what you should be doing. So I know that's why our marketing team loves the growth courses because of those real world examples and also just strategic concepts that are good to think about as opposed to saying this is, you know, a hundred percent going to get you there. Yeah. Beware of anybody who says that. I was going to say, wouldn't that be nice if if we could be so bold? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, while we're on the topic, um, I mean, we enjoyed our conversations with Dana and I believe Julie, is that correct? Julie was on the, it was in it at first. And then we had Maya and now we just onboarded Diana who um, in, like I was sharing part of our onboarding process for social media and communication associates is the growth course. Um, So we've had several people within the organization take it. That is so exciting. That is exactly what we are hoping for, for it to be an ongoing resource for y'all. Because as as things change and digital always changes, we will always be updating and providing other resources for y'all. So I love that you guys are hanging out and sticking around and being super active with it. That's awesome. Yeah, we really appreciate it. I, I pinged, you know, I guess I slacked. Diana before and I said what you know she's the newest so what do you like the most and she said a variety of things but in particular there was an email marketing module with a downloadable pdf um, and she loves the template for um for for our email marketing strategy so thank you for that yes love that everyone doesn't think email is as sexy as all the other levers so Sometimes it gets overlooked, but I think, you know, deep down, it's it's one of our favorites. It, it definitely uh, moves the, the needle. It's valuable for Zoom. <laughs> I would say if I were to rank like our marketing resources in terms of return on investment, the first one is still traditional PR. I mean, to be able to be featured in a publication like Wall Street Journal, Food and Wine, Bon Appetit we see real life immediate returns to our website orders, uh, Amazon checkouts, things like that. The second one is email. I mean, we're able to, and granted, it's just harder to track as it relates to, you know, the influencer and social media type um, content that's being put out. But um, as it relates to, for me as a CEO and not a marketing brain, um, you know, I really covet and just love our email marketing channel. And we put a lot of our 
strategy and resources to it. So anytime we can improve that and improve its return is something that our market marketing team is constantly strategizing about. Yeah, that's great to hear. And just to pull it back to how you're speaking on relationship building, I mean, you are arriving in someone's inbox, a consumer or, you know, a fan's inbox, and you get to have that direct connection with them through email. And that's, that's a pretty personal place to be. So yeah, I think it really ties nicely into your overall mission um, as a brand. Yeah. I also think when people choose to open your email, they're choosing to engage with you. You know, how many emails do we all just delete every day? And not to say that everybody opens our emails. I'm not even sure what our open rate is these days, but the people that do are really engaged. And so providing them with appropriate and meaningful content is really important. And then obviously curating a larger email new list is what's it's it's the top priority because that open rate will always be in relation to how many people are on the list. And so to grow that is very important at Zoom right now. That's awesome. Love to hear it. You guys watching y'all's growth is super exciting for us. So we love following along. Well, I guess the last question we have is what would be your biggest piece of advice to a small CPG business owner who might be going through it right now? Oh, well, I love this. Um, I have a four-year-old son, but we watch Frozen a lot and Frozen 2, not but, and we watch Frozen, Frozen 2 a lot. And there's a quote in Frozen 2 that resonated, it like hit me so hard when I was watching with him, which is when you don't know what to do, just do the next right thing, right? Like there's no way to know exactly what you need to do to get from A to Z, but you can figure out what to do to get from A to B and B to C and things like that. So that's my biggest piece of advice, I think, is just to focus on what you can control, appreciate, you know, fo- and, and manipulate and work on those small wins in the meantime, leading up to a larger goal. I also think um, setting intentions and writing down a one-year goal and breaking that down into what needs to happen this quarter. And then beyond that, what needs to happen this month? And then what needs to happen this week to make sure that month piece is done, that quarterly piece is done, leading up to that one big or two or three yearly goals is a great way to tackle some of those more daunting projects. Love it. Um, Yeah, absolutely can't handle anything unless I break it down. And I love that frozen quote. I've not heard that before. Um, Frozen two. Frozen two. Okay. (laughs) We're going to need to like pull that in. Well, Amy, thank you so much. Um, I I feel like there's a lot of great pieces of advice for, um, you know, really any level CPG brand here. So thank you again for, you know, giving us so much and um, would you like to leave our listeners with how they can contact you or Zoom? Sure. We can find all of our contact info on our Zoom crew page on our website. So that's zoomfoods.com. You can find lots of recipes on tahini there. And I think the best two ways to follow and stay engaged, or maybe three ways, I should say, Instagram, LinkedIn now. It's amazing how that, um, I think, channel has shifted over the past year or two. And then also on Facebook, we have a Zoom foodies group. So if you like food and you like tahini, it's a really fun, casual group to be in. So that's our our real play on Facebook these days. Exciting. Well, we'll be sure and link all of that in the show notes for everyone to find. Thank you. 
Thanks, Amy. Ooh, My Social Circle is a CPG agency-driven podcast based out of Austin, Texas. We're excited to share more behind-the-scene insights, chats with industry leaders, and whatever else we learn along the way. Follow us on Instagram at umaimarketing or check out our website, umaimarketing.com. Catch you back here soon.